Kennedy Street, please visit kennedystreetcio.org. Recovery is possible. Well, we have gone live, gentlemen. If you're there, watch it. Welcome, good morning, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to our Wednesday Kennedy Street Live um, Recovery Talks. That's what we call this little chat. Um, I'm Claire Kennedy, for those of you who don't know. I run um, a small charity on the South Coast in Brighton called Kennedy Street, and we are a recovery charity that helps um, make recovery visible basically, in a nutshell. Um, and what we do is we use this platform to spread the message of hope. And we invite amazing guest speakers from all sorts of walks of life who have got um, a, a powerful message to carry. Um, and today is one of those days. We've got a great gentleman with us today by the name of Alan. Um, Kev will introduce, um, in, introduce him a little bit more to you. I'll hand over to my very handsome husband, who's going to introduce himself and then our guest speaker. So. Hello. Hello, everybody. Uh, my name's Kevin. Uh, I am the patron of Kennedy Street. Uh, if you're looking to put a uh, face to the voice. I used to be Curly Watts in Coronation Street. Uh, excuse the mess. We are in the middle of actually moving. So if I sort of disappear into this seat, uh, there's four boxes and stuff. Um, so it's a little bit uh, a bit mad today. So bear with us. Um, and I need a haircut. Um, can't wait for this lockdown to be over eventually. Uh, I'm sure you all feel the same. Today we're going to be talking to Alan from, I think, the DDA. Uh, and this is like a, a dual diagnosis, I think, uh, of which I know uh, nothing because I don't have any notes because I've packed them away. <laughs> so um, so Alan is going to not only inform everyone out there what, what this is all about, but he's going to educate myself as well. So uh, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Alan. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Um, yeah, I suppose... If I'm going to make sense of, 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 of how I got involved in DDA, and ultimately I will explain what DDA is and what it's all about. But I suppose, you know, to make sense of it all, I, I need to tell the story in totality. Why, you know, and, and the reasons why I, I was so uh, willing to get involved in, 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 in DDA when the chance arose. Because um, I, I, I come from a long history of, of, of substance misuse and mental health issues. Well, I, I was born in Manchester, um, 1957, to what I suppose was um, could would be termed today as a kind of broken home. My, the, my parents' marriage dissolved. My mum remarried. I had adopted brothers, and and, and 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 I remember growing up very disturbed by life. I never really liked it. I couldn't understand the inhumanity of the world. We'd just come out of two world wars. We was in the middle of a cold one. I just thought this world was a pretty horrendous place. Why and I remember growing up with that kind of feeling that I wish I'd never been born, you know, and 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 then when I was 17, 18, why well, I came across drugs and alcohol. And it, it it was it was a solution for me to the problem of life. Why well, so I, I dived head head first into drugs and alcohol and and, and I developed a, a heroin addict at why well, by the time I was 19. Why, which persisted for 20 odd years. I was on methadone for 20 odd years. Um, I also developed a, a crack cocaine habit, why, which also endured all the way through. It was only interrupted by periods of incarceration. Why, you know, obviously um, for myself, not for, for, for others, but for myself, you know, I faced a lot of the consequences of my drug addiction and my alcoholism, you know, and, and the consequences included a lot of times you know, incarceration in prisons, you know, detox units, residential rehabs, right, um, day programs, just the psychiatric hospitals in the end with cocaine-induced psychosis. And and I, I was just on this merry guard. After 22 years, I put the drugs down during a hospitalization. Right, I was hospitalized through my drug taking. Right, and during that hospitalization, I couldn't get anyone to bring me drugs in hospital, but I could manage to get in a wheelchair and take myself to the hospital, I out, out of the hospital and into the off license. And 
and in that hospitalization, I switched seamlessly from addiction into alcoholism. And when I came out of the hospital, I, I didn't pick up the drugs again, but I, I didn't put down the bottle either. And I moved into, into 10 years of alcoholism, which really took me to, to depths that even the drink, the drink never did take me, and the drugs never did take me. So my life was, was, was escalating, and, and, and I think I was on the brink of death. I don't think I could have held on much longer. Um, when, when some guy introduced himself to me in a McDonald's and asked me, did I remember him from a detox unit years before? And I didn't because he looked really healthy. You know? And he explained that the reason, he, you know, I probably didn't recognize him and he probably looked different was because he hadn't drank for years. And the reason was, you know, because he was involved in the fellowship of AA and I knew who AA was, but, you know, because I, when I'd been in detox units and residential rehabs they'd sometimes visited the rehab or, but I'd never been to one in the community and 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 that was the beginning of my recovery the guy took me to a, a fellowship meeting and then he came in for the next three nights and took me and then he just left me on my own and said there's a meeting around the corner and and I, and I ended up taking myself there and that was the beginning of my recovery and I spent the first year attending meetings and kind of trying to evaluate you know life and my take on it and and for the first time, I was actually getting to the root of the problem, which was me. What what drove all my drinking and drug taking was this this this, this uncomfortableness within myself. And fortunately, you know, the program of AA is a spiritual program; it's not a religious one. Right? And I started to gravitate towards this idea that I'm spiritual, away from this egoic idea of self, which I'd always held, which spawned all my problems. Right, you know, and all my insecurities and fears and doubts about the world was this idea of self. I had, I held this idea of self that I was the thinker trapped inside this body, and this body was trapped inside of a life I didn't solicit and didn't ask for, and actually didn't like very much. Right, and I felt burdened by this life, you know, and it was all wrapped in with this idea of who I was. And during the my my, my first year of recovery, I kind of moved away from that idea of self and gravitated towards the idea that I'm both physical and spiritual, right? And the spiritual part of me, the essence of me, is connected to the essence of you, to the essence of the dog, to the spirit in, in the trees, in the bird. You know, so I started to feel connected, something I'd never felt in my life before. I'd felt absolutely isolated and disconnected from life, right? So I, I spent my first year working on myself. And then in my second year of recovery, well, I, I thought I need to take my recovery outside of myself and into the real world. And I, I, like I said, I'd led a dysfunctional life. I'd never really worked or anything in my life. So I, I decided if I wanted different, I had to do different. And I started volunteering for a homeless charity, right? Uh, just making teas and coffees for people that was using the shelter and using the, it was a facility where they could come in and wash their clothes and have a shower and have something to eat. And so people who was using the, the, the place, I'd make them cups of tea and stuff. And, and I was a year or so into recovery then. And a lot of the people that was using the service were, were, were kind of in, in the throes of active addiction and active alcoholism at the time. And we'd often engage in conversation. And I'd explain that I come from that background, but I'm a year clean. And after 30 odd years, and they would say, how, how did that happen? And we'd get in these conversations and, and the drug and alcohol worker that worked at the shelter was called Dan, who's now my partner in DDA. And Dan overheard these conversations that I was having with the clients. Right? And, and he came and said to me, have you ever considered studying drugs and alcohol on this side of the fence? You've got a PhD in taking them. Right? You know, but have you ever considered studying them? So he went off and he came back with a sheet of paper and some evening classes. Right, you know, in studying drugs and alcohol and their effects, and so I, I joined my first evening classes and started studying, um, and then I, I ended up falling into peer support, right, and studying peer support, and then I, I applied for a job as voluntary position working in the detox unit, where where I I, I actually got cleaning, right, so I was employed by the NHS, right, and I as, as a peer support worker in the detox unit. And I stayed there for five years till the unit closed down and then moved into mental health. And, and for the last five years, I've been working as a peer support worker in, in an acute mental health setting. Um, but back to the story. So Dan, who gave me this introduction, and we stayed friends. So after I moved on with my recovery, he moved on and he, 
he went to other jobs and he's now a dual diagnosis worker for the NHS. But when he was still working for Mongo's Broadway as a drug and alcohol worker, they got a little funding to go over to America and study of different approaches, how the Americans approached a combination of mental health, addiction and homelessness. Right. So a little cohort of people went over to America and Dan chose to, to look at dual diagnosis. So he, he Googled and it came up with DDA, Dual Diagnosis Anonymous. And he hadn't heard of this before. It wasn't in England. Right. So he looked it up and, and then he went along to a few of the meetings and there was really powerful meetings. So he introduced himself after the meeting. And fortunately, the, the founder, a guy called Corbett Monica, was actually at that meeting. So Dan and him struck up a friendship. Right. And over the, the course of Dan's stay there, Dan went to several meetings and had several chats with Corbett. And Corbett and, and this program of DDA is based on the 12 steps of AA. There's only one word change in the whole of the 12 steps, and it's in the first step. Whereas it says we were powerless over alcohol, it says we were powerless over our dual diagnosis. It's just substituted the word alcohol with dual diagnosis. The rest is unadulterated. If it's not broken, don't fix it. Right. So that deals with the addiction side of a dual diagnosis. So Corbett, Monica, right, he he took two people that he was he 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 was he was himself dual diagnosed. He was a Vietnam vet. And he retrained and he became a counselor. And he was working with two two guys who was duly diagnosed. And he took them to an AA meeting. And inside the AA meeting, one of them became a bit unwell and he disturbed the meeting. And they was approached afterwards and says, thanks for bringing these guys, but kindly don't bring them back again. Right? This is AA and we're about alcohol, not mental health. So Corbett thought this was wrong. So he wrote to AA and he asked permission to use the 12 steps, but to, 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 to use it in cooperation with an additional five steps, which he formulated himself, which focus on the mental health side of the dual diagnosis. So he formulated these programs and he formed DDA. And he set up meetings. Now, the difference between DDA meetings and a single purpose fellowship, like the single purpose fellowships like AA, NA, CA, their primary concern right, and, and is, is to carry the message to the still suffering alcoholic addict. So anything that kind of detracts from that, right, you know, is, is kind of closed down. Right? Stick to alcoholism, stick to addiction, right? not mental health. So, you know, people tend, you know, to kind of, um, censor themselves when they're in an AA, NA, CA meeting and they don't talk about their mental health and they don't talk about their addiction. Uh, they talk about their addiction, but they don't talk about their mental health or the symptoms of their mental health or the struggles with prescribed medication or or anything like that. They just censor themselves and they don't talk about that right? because they know it's, it's not the forum, it's not the place. So it, so that's that, that kind of denies them one of the key ingredients of fellowship which is identification, right? Whenever you go along to an AA meeting, an NA meeting or a CA meeting, listen for the similarities and not the differences. This is what you directed, right? You know, and and, and people get, before they even understand what the 12 steps are, right? They've taken themselves to, to a meeting and, and they get identification with others. They might not have had the similar life. One might come have been brought up in Park Lane and one might have been brought up on a park bench. Their lives couldn't be more dissimilar. Right. But if they talk about their addiction or their alcoholism, they will get identification in the feelings, in the way it felt, in the shame, the guilt, the remorse, the lies, the deceit. Right. All these things, you know, they will get identification. And, and so that's the hook. That's the lure that keeps you coming back long enough to discover the 12 steps and decide to start working through them. Right. You know, first, the first thing that keeps you coming back is the identification with others. Well, that's denied to people with a dual diagnosis. Because they might, if you go along to an AA meeting, there might be 10 people in the AA meeting who are duly diagnosed, who are struggling with their mental health, but they will not talk about it. So the others, the other 10, nine people sat in the room will not, they won't get no identification because they're not able. So the, the first liberating and freeing thing about DDA is it allows people to talk about both those struggles, right? Their struggles with addiction, their struggles with mental health, Right, you know, in the one place and get identification from others. Right. So there was a real need for this. So Dan came back from America 
explained to me about these five additional steps that he'd been given permission from Corbett to try to bring it over to America, uh, to England, sorry, from America, and try to establish DDA in here. So Dan, at this point, got back to England. He knows this is a peer-led program. He's a professional himself, although he will, by his own admission, explain that he has some, some mental health issues, but he has no addiction issues or anything. So um, he, he knew that he needed a peer. Right. And he thought of me. Right. So he got in touch with me and he said, Alan, I've been to America. I've come across this program. Right. Um, are you interested in, in, in getting it off the ground with me? And I, I said, of course I am. I was only too willing because I knew from my own lived experience, right, the, 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 the prevalence of, of a dual diagnosis. Right? I knew just how many people, you know, it's the elephant in the room. Right. You know, and so I knew from and I knew from my my, my recovery time. I'd worked five years in a detox unit, right? And I knew, right, from my five years working in a detox unit, the amount of people that a dual diagnosis, you know, applied to, right? And, and, and then again, you know, when, when I, I left the detox unit and went to work in a mental health ward, right, it was completely evident to me how many mental health patients have addiction issues because they self-prescribe, right? They self-medicate. Right. Uh, so I, I, I knew from both sides, from the addiction services, the prevalence of mental health and from the mental health side, the prevalence of addiction. So I, I, I was only too willing to, to help him try to get this off the ground. And we was really fortunate because at this point, this is where John O'Donnell, the guy who couldn't get in the meeting. This is where he comes into the picture, because once Dan explained to me about DDA and I had said, I'm, I'm only too willing to get involved. Let's try. We decided the first thing we should do is have a look what already exists, right? You know, what, what's already tackling dual diagnosis, if anything, right? We knew there wasn't much, very very tokenistic efforts from the professional, you know, um, field, right? Um, but what was happening on a peer level? So we looked and there was an organization called Dual Recovery Anonymous, of which John O'Donnell was running the meetings. I think there was three. There was three meetings in West London, right, dual recovery. But it was trying to put a square peg in a round hole, really, right? It was trying to tackle dual diagnosis, but only using the 12 steps with no focus on the mental health side of the dual diagnosis. So it, it, it really was floundering a little bit. It, it, you know, it did have the luxury of people was able to talk about both issues in the one forum, right? But they didn't have a specifically suited to purpose program, right? So, um, so we went along to the dual recovery meetings right, and we introduced ourselves to John O'Donnell afterwards and we explained about the, the dual diagnosis anonymous program of 17 steps, the 12 steps plus plus the additional five. Right, and sorry, that was a mistrack. <laughs> My daughter phoning me there. I just had to ring her up. And yet, where was I? I forgot myself. It completely threw me that. Did. So, um, yeah, the the additional five steps, right? So um, I still forgot where I was. <laughs> right. um, well, let's start with those five steps. Those, those are those things. Shall I, shall I, I've got them, right? The, the additional five steps are here. So I, I think I'll read them out so people are understanding what are these additional steps. Yes, right? please. The additional five steps of dual diagnosis, Anonymous, are step one, we admitted that we had a mental illness in addition to our substance abuse, and we accepted our dual diagnosis. Two, we became willing to accept help for both of these diseases. Three, we've understood the importance of medication, clinical interventions and therapies, and we've accepted the need for sobriety from alcohol and abstinence from all non-prescribed drugs in our program. We came to believe that when our own efforts were combined with the help of others in the fellowship of DDA and God, as we understood him, we would develop healthy drug and alcohol free lifestyles. And five, we continue to follow the DDA program of the 12 steps plus five. And we maintained healthy drug and alcohol free lifestyles and helped others. So we, ex we explained about these additional five steps to John O'Donnell. And he, and then we gave him the workbook, 
there's an exercise book, a workbook, Dual Diagnosis Anonymous, Journey Through to 12 Plus 5. Right? And we, we gave John the readings. We gave John the book. He went away. He took a look. And then he got back in touch with us and said, um, this is, is much more ideally suited to purpose. Right? Do you mind if I drop the dual recovery and adopt the dual diagnosis anonymous program? And we said, of course not. So three meetings that were formerly dual recovery anonymous converted at that time to dual diagnosis anonymous. So we had three meetings running before we'd even started, really. Right? And so then we wrote to the commissioners, the commissioners for mental health and the commissioners for the addiction services. And we got them to sit around a table, which is pretty remarkable right as it as it is because they're at polar opposites normally right you know they're always playing table tennis with the clients and batting them backwards and forwards right but we actually got them to collaborate and we explained about dda and this was in a real time of austerity five years ago when there was massive cutbacks and all that but they were so taken by this program this peer-led initiative right that they come up with a small sum of money right, £10,000 to get a website going, to get a few additional meetings, to get some literature printed, to get some... So they came up with... So we opened an additional two meetings. So we now had five going, right? Um, and then at that point, we we approached London University, right? Because both Dan and I... Dan took his degree at West London University and was friends with the professor. And I've been invited to talk about peer support. So we was kind of friendly with the professor, so we, we we got in touch with her, told her about DDA. She applied for some separate funding to, to do an efficacy study on, on the pilot program of, of DDA. So uh, and which she received. She, she, she received more money than we did. <laughs> she received more money to study us than we got to set up. <laughs> so she started doing this study. She started doing a, a kind of um, qualitative study. She based on data as well as, as as like interviews with the people who was attending DDA and stuff, uh, which was great. That 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 really helped us um become kind of uh authentic, right? You know, um and then the pandemic. So everything was going really well. Right. We'd been commissioned in a few years on the run by by West London. We was on the brink we was we'd started a, a, a workshop right to take people through the the 12 steps plus five, right? And so as people was getting through that, we was hoping we were going to open more meetings. And But, you know, then the pandemic happened and we had to go to Zoom, right? Now, that was a double-edged sword, right? Because on the one hand, right, you know, um, it meant we was denied face-to-face -face meetings and they're, they're powerful. You know, just something about being in a room, sat together, there's this dynamic, there's this, you know, power in the room. So, you know, that was going to be like, but we set up on Zoom. Now, the, but the beauty of going to Zoom was that it made us accessible. I mean, formally, all our five meetings was in West London. That was where we was commissioned. That's where we were set up. I work full time. Dan works full time. Right. So all what we was trying to do was outside of that. Right? You know, so we'd centered ourselves in West London. So only people that lived in that locale could access DDA. But once we went to Zoom, Right, that was no longer the case. Right, people from all over the country and further afield, even other countries, and now can join DDA. So the Zoom meetings have been fantastic. Right, in the sense that it's made us much more inclusive. You know, people from in remote places can can get a laptop and and join DDA. Right, you know, and the meetings have grown in popularity. They like last night there was nineteen people. You know, in the meeting, we've started. Um, which is really great, right? A couple of the ladies that attend, right? And they've been attending for a good while now, right? Um, they've started up a creative group, right? Which happens on a Wednesday night, right? Um, which happened tonight, right? It, which is great, you know, it, where, where people come on and they, they do their artwork. Some other people might play some music for us to listen to. I usually recite poetry and stuff because I like to write poetry and it's just great. And another lady started up a gong meditation session, right? So, because a big aspect of of, of, of the face-to-face -face DDA meetings was we we began we got a, a little pot of money to start social enterprise off, and we started going on things like we went on a retreat, a spiritual retreat, 
to some monastery, and that was fantastic. Why everybody had a great time. We did other stuff like bowling evenings and going for meals and stuff. So that that, that was like the glue that kind of held everyone together. And, and and obviously with the pandemic again, that all went out of the window. So we're trying to substitute it with some kind of social fun, something that's not recovery focused, you know, essentially. Although people do end up breaking into, you know, conversations, right? Um, but it, it's not it's not a meeting as such. It's not structured in any way. It's very informal. It's very light. People are enjoying themselves and that. So we started to introduce that as well. So. Yeah, I think that's that's it really. I think that's that's about DDA. <laughs> wow, that's phenomenal. Now your friend John, yeah, I mean, well done for that. That's epic. And what a great narrator you are, may I say. Wonderful <laughs> to listen to you all day, actually. I'm not I'm not on good form today. <laughs> well, you're on fire. <laughs> Isn't you on form? I don't know what, what to expect when you are on form. Um, well, it, it, help, it helps, Claire. When you're sincere, right? You know, it helps when you actually mean what you're saying, yeah. right? You know, it, it, yeah, it yeah. helps when you're sincere. I know, I know. And that's what people connect with, isn't it, Alan? I mean, that's, it's yeah. that sincerity that cuts into people's hearts. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Someone, I mean, once said to me, someone once said to me, only what comes from the heart can reach the heart, right? And, and I, I kind of take, take, Take that to heart. <laughs> Pardon the pun. Right. But, but I know it's true because I, I work in an environment where people come in and they're extremely, extremely unwell. Yeah. Right. But they, they remember your kindness when they get well and they remember your sincerity. And, you know, yeah, people, people can sense sincerity just the same way we can sense insincerity. So, you know, it, it helps when you mean what you're saying. What I find fascinating about that is, is, I mean, to me, I would I thought that addiction and mental health went in tandem, but it seems it only goes to a certain a certain level, and and, and it's the nuts and bolts of of the meeting, because if someone who has mental health issues as well as addiction suddenly has an an episode and and is unwell in a meeting, it kind of upsets everyone else, which is I think that's probably just human nature um and so therefore they feel excluded but this is a real education for me because obviously the t as, as they do in the mental health and addiction do go along in tandem but there's a certain cutoff point i think where the mental health takes over uh and, and stops the person getting well from the addiction uh and i think what you're doing is is terrific absolutely and, and, and you know what 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 normally happens is, is, is people with a dual diagnosis get asked a totally, you know, unreasonable ask. They get asked to separate the two issues, right, and talk about their addiction over here in the addiction services and talk about their mental health over here in their mental health and, and separate the two issues. And then it's impossible. They're co-occurring. They're happening together and so interconnected. But, you know, to try to silo them and, 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 and talk about one over it, which happens in, 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 in the professional framework, right? You know, so many times people go along and, and they get told by the addiction services that we can't really work with this person, right, because they have mental health issues and, and they refer them to the mental health services. And when they go to the mental health services, they get told we can't really work with this person until they solve their addiction issues. And they can't, you know, they just keep falling between the cracks. It's tragic. I mean, I, I've been, I've been um, volunteering in the community for 22 years and I've been running this charity for a year. But before that I was running a social enterprise. So um, um, the legal structure was a not-for-profit legal structure where we would support people <coughs> in the community who had complex needs. You know, I'm a recovering alcoholic addict, Kev's a recovering alcoholic addict, but our experience has always been, um, first of all, it's kindness and love that, that really impacts people. And second of all, it's um, 
you can't silo these conditions. You know, we look at the terminology recovery as a generic terminology. Of course, we embrace the 12-step programmes. We embrace lots of different models of care, to be honest, because it isn't. I mean, I've been doing this for 22 years and I've met so many beautiful people along the way who have found recovery in various pathways. But you have to, the, the most important thing is that people are seeking. So, yeah. right. absolutely. And, and the way I look at it is, is if I want to get to Oxford Circus, all right, there, there must be a hundred different routes I can take. I can get this bus, this tube, there must be a hundred different routes I can take to get to Oxford Circus. I don't care which route you take, just end up at Oxford Circus. Right, you know, and that's that's why we encourage people, you know, to, to stay involved in, in other forms of therapy, right? To get involved in in, in, in in talk therapy, to get involved, you know, with a psychologist if that's necessary. You know, we're not the be all and end all. It is if we're of use, incorporate it, right? Incorporate it into what works for you. Recovery is very individualistic, right? You know, and what works for one, you know, might not be, you know something that works for another, right? So find what works for you. And, and all we are is, is a support network. We're not the answer to all things, right? We don't claim to be. We claim to support each other on this journey, right? You know, and, and, and that, that's it. We don't, we don't claim to have the answers to all problems and be the solution per se, yeah. right? We, we, may, we may well be part of the solution, yeah. right? You know, and... and, and and investigate, have a look. Yeah. See, maybe. I think what I think is beautiful about what you're doing, Alan, is that you're giving people a starting point. And often, often, more often than not, is you, you know, I come across um, amazing people who do want to address their addiction problems, but they do have enduring mental health. And it's like the chicken and the egg. You know, which do you tackle first? And it is sad. I mean, I had one lady I was working with just before the um, pandemic. And honest to God, it was one of the most painful experiences to watch her go through what she was going through. Um, she had a little girl as well. I mean, obviously, we had to safeguard the little girl primarily. And she was she had massive mental health problems. And it Honest, over a period of a week, we took her. Thanks God, there was a there was a team, there was an army of people in recovery supporting her, and we were taking her from one pillar to the post, like to, from one service to another service. And all of the time, the services were saying, "We can't help her. She needs to address her addiction problem first. The addiction problem was like, well, she can't stay here. She's too mentally unwell, and it was. I mean. We, we eventually got there. We did eventually get there. But I'll tell you something, it was it was really a difficult experience to go through as a bystander. So can you yeah, imagine, imagine someone with no support trying to navigate through that? I don't know how people do it. And we had, in the end, we had about 10 women all in recovery around this lady. And we were um, all supporting her. We were staying with her. We were looking after her. We were, you know, just tending to all of the needs just to get her to the next day, really, and to make sure that she didn't hurt herself because that was obviously the, the one thing that she was trying to do. But it was so difficult. And people would say, well, why don't you get a section? We were like, well, we've tried, but they won't section her. It was, it was such a difficult... I mean, that we come across that a lot, you know? Um, I just think... Yeah, sad, sadly, sadly, so do I. I'm going through, yeah, through the the messages here. I just want to say, well, thank you, Sarah and Sharon and Nancy and Joshua and Christopher. Uh, but the, uh, uh, a point here that, that Joshua's brought up, that DDA is much more common in America than the UK. Can you tell me um, how how is it progressing now in the UK? I know you were saying it was doing really well before the pandemic, but how is it progressing now uh, in the UK? Are meetings ready and available? And where can they get hold of, of your uh, organisation? Well, there, there's a, a DDA website, ddauk.org, right? Um, and all the information's on, on that website. It's yeah, on there, the, it is. There, yeah it is. there it is. There it is. 
yeah, all, all the information is on that way. We're only Zoom at the moment, right? Um, obviously, because of the situation. Um, hopefully, that's going to change. Um, America, right? Yes, they are so much more advanced. I mean, we 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 didn't invent the wheel, right? We only got permission to bring the wheel over here, right? <laughs> you know, um, so they're they're twenty odd years advanced on us. Right, and 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 we're very very close with them. The chief executive officer, Doyle Smith, he's been over visited us and been to conferences with us and things. He, he's a, he, he's very very supportive, and they they've progressed to the point where they're, they're actually now in 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 all the places of concentrations of of, of duly diagnosed people, like prisons. They they have dual diagnosis meetings in in in, in all the major prisons. Right in, in in all the mental health facilities and you know homeless, so they, they they're actually established in inside the framework um, over there. We're not at the moment, right? Our meetings are all on Zoom. We was we are in negotiations of going with um, Ealing Hospital about providing a meeting in their forensic department, um, but obviously that's on hold because of the pandemic as well. So we we was trying to. To, to kind of emulate their their, their path, right? You know, and, and kind of grow sustainably as they did, right? So yeah, but they they're a, they're a font of knowledge for us, and, and any kind of queries we have in relate, I mean, we have one now, right? The, the, this uh, forensic unit that wants us to provide uh, a DDA meeting there, they're actually asked us, are we able to incorporate DDA? Alongside harm minimization and 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 other um, kind of aspects of recovery, right? Um, and we need to check that out, right? Is that affiliating? You know, is you know, is that acceptable? And, and so, like, our go-to on that is is Dial Smith, right, the chief executive in America, because they'll have come across that kind of issue lots of times previously, and we can end up guided by them. So. So yeah, we we guided a lot from America as to. And can I ask you if someone is in the fellowships, no matter what the fellowship is, yeah. uh, and they suspect that they may have uh, mental issues as well, mental health issues, are they welcome at your meetings? Absolutely, right. A lot of the the people that attend DDA, they also attend NA, AA, CA, and they still do even though they've been attending DDA for, for a good while now, some of them years, right, you know, and but they still go to their, 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 their core meetings, right, you know, their, their home groups, right, because that's, that's, that's been part and parcel of that. And, and we are kind of something to be added to that rather than replace it, yeah. right, you know, it's just an additional help yeah. format, yeah. you know, where they... So they, they go and they talk about their addiction, their alcoholism in AA, NACA, right? And then they come and they, and then, and for this hour, an uh, hour and a half, some of the meetings are, they're, they're able to talk about, you know, other struggles that they're having with their addiction, with side effects of medication and stuff, right? And so they're liberated to be able to do that there. And then they can go and talk about their addiction back at AA, which they've always done, which is great. So it just gives them a kind of place to talk about other things that they're dealing with it's another tool isn't it it's another tool in their arsenal yeah. i mean over Absolutely. the over the last 22 years i've acquired many tools in my bag i mean it's probably bigger than this house <laughs> <laughs> it, it, that's that's what we do isn't it that's what we learn in recovery is that it's okay to ask for help and yeah. that it's absolutely liberating once you realize that you can't do it on your own and that the the simplest words is will you help me um set you free you know um i think it's amazing what you're doing honestly i think it's great and well done america again we love america i'm not that keen on them myself but in this regard yeah uh, so so if if for instance, you know, like with with the twelve step fellowships, if um, there were a group of recovering alcoholics, say um, that wanted to open an AA meeting, they could they could go and open an AA meeting. Is that similar to you? Is this similar in your case? So, is it similar traditions and things like that? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So how would it work? Would they have to come to your meeting first of all and obviously find out what it is? That the... Yes. <laughs> that would be advisable. But yeah. Then, you know, I, 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 and, and there's also a workshop that goes through the, the DDA steps. Where, you know, it would be a good idea for anyone who wanted to open a meeting during this lockdown. I mean, I think we're, we're on step, we finished step 12. Uh, we're on step one of the five now. Right, so the workshops at step, so it'll be starting again in about four weeks' time, right? Mm. Back at step one again, right? Um, and so, when, are, when are the workshops? Um, the workshops are on a Monday. Workshops are on a Monday for one and Monday a half. Evening, yeah. You don't have to wait though, do you? You can jump in on this at any time. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you know, I, I would suggest don't jump in on a Monday because they're you know they're working through the steps. Yeah. But there's there's, there's Tuesday. Thursday, uh, sorry, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You know, there's lots of other meetings that people just, if they just want to jump on board, have a look, right, yeah. you know, check, check it out, you know, contempt and, prior to investigation and all that. And when the pandemic ends, is do you have, like, the meetings in, in the normal fellowships in church halls and so forth and so forth? Yes. Yeah. And I mean, also before the pandemic, we were... We, that that is the, the plan, but we we was kind of focused mainly. We was in hospitals, right, and and drug and alcohol service providers, right. You know, let loaned us a room. They they loaned the rooms to AA, and so we was mainly in drug and alcohol service providers and hospitals, um, rather than churches and stuff. But we will go okay. along them lines. I, I I'm hoping that when because we've gone on Zoom now, right. It's meant that a lot of people are very familiar with DDA. They've been involved for a while. They've actually gone through the steps and stuff. So they'll be once this pandemic situation ends, they'll be able to open wherever they are in Manchester, you know, in in Wolverhampton, in yeah. in Cornwall, or, or or wherever they are. Right? And and I don't know what meeting halls they're going to use, but presumably churches and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think. In a way, uh, I think the pandemic has been, um, I mean, I know it's been terrible and awful for so many people and the tragedies and losses that people have experienced are insurmountable. But I think um, for some, it's brought all of this to a head. I know that's how our helpline came about was we never used to operate a helpline before and we never used to do these talks before. But the level of need just went through the ceiling um, and our phone didn't stop. It was just continuous. And we just thought, well, what can we do to help? Well, we need, we're getting calls from all over the country. So we need to find out what's happening all over the country. So that's why these talks came about. But I think Zoom, um, and I'm sure there are other platforms available, but Zoom has opened the world up so beautifully i mean i've never had such a great experience of integrating people into recovery than than during this pandemic we've had so many successes with um just people getting well and starting on this amazing adventure um so um, will you do you think alan that so some of the step meetings have now gone. Now we're going back into the community. They've developed like a hybrid system where they have a, a live meeting face to face, which, like you said, totally agrees. Critical. I connect with human beings, not screens. But screens are convenient. Um, but it would be great if if um, maybe your meetings were. I'm not suggest making suggestions, but I'm just curious to know if you would do like hybrid meetings where you've got a live meeting with a web presence, so people can um, log in from remote areas. That that's, that's definitely something that we would aspire to to do as soon as you know we're able, yeah. as soon as the situation changes and we're able to get that live uh, kind of element right to 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 attach to the. The, the Zoom meeting and stuff. Yeah, that would be something we'd we'd be looking to do as soon as as soon as we're able. Yeah, I think it's. I think it'll be really helpful because what I oh go on what? Sorry. Do you know what came off the back of Zoom, which has been fantastic, and we never had it before. Right, is we we now have a, a DDA WhatsApp group. Right, um, so all the people that joined the meetings have joined the WhatsApp group. And the level of support for each other 
he's just phenomenal yeah. right it's just really really phenomenal right you know people text every morning i mean like it's ping 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 right <laughs> honestly right you know and, and just the the way that people are supporting each other outside the meetings outside the kind of uh, creative groups and the gong sessions and stuff right outside that right they're supporting each other via the whatsapp right you know so they're constantly you know oh i'm having a bad day shall i private call you yes please do so they're all linking into each other and calling each other and supporting each other which is amazing you know and that's when and that all come up the back yeah and that's when, that's when technology really comes into its own and you realize how important um and how blessed we are really to have this technology you know thanks god that we've got this technology during this time we've had so many comments we've had some lovely really lovely comments we've got a lady um who sent my sister two years three months clean and she's so happy please god may it continue another lady called nancy said this is so wonderful what you're doing um another chap has said he had to hide his drinking from the mental health services for many years as he knew that he would have been turned away you know um and another lady saying yeah she completely agrees that they're totally connected um and here we go okay we've got a lady by the name of sarah who's a lovely friend of mine and she said does alan have any suggestions for getting me a meeting started in sussex i thought sarah does that she's really key <laughs> yeah tell, tell her you know join, join the zoom right get them get, get the zoom details off the website yeah join zoom right have a listen right um see see the format see how how, how the meetings um open and transpire right and and then you'll see our just get in touch with us uh, and we'll help you in, in that regard amazing amazing do you know what i'm i feel so inspired by what you're doing um i'd love to come along i mean you know i've experienced all sorts of different mental health across the, over the years in recovery you know um i would love to come and find out a little bit more about how you're working please do feel please yeah. do because the, hub, yeah, because the hub that we want to create in manchester is a place where people can thrive and i think you know what if we could offer a place where you know amazing meetings like yours could come and this hybrid system i think this hybrid system it just it just catapults it out further as well and, and in my experience of the, the phone line ringing, we've had a lot of people in remote areas getting in contact that normally wouldn't be able to go to meetings because they live yeah. in the middle of... We've had that. And a lot, of it, a lot of people who are older, who have had to isolate, who've struggled with addiction problems and mental health, um, have really struggled in the past to get to meetings. So I think it's, I think it's just a great addition. Um, yeah. I mean, e e even when it opens back up again, hopefully in the near future, right? Zoom is here to stay, right? You know, for, for all the reasons you just mentioned, right? There's so many people that can't access meetings, you know, frailty, you know, um, lots and lots of different reasons. Right? They, they, they live remote, right? You know, and, and there's just no meetings, you know, local, right? So, you know, all those people can access. So Zoom's here to stay. Absolutely. Yeah. Can I just say something to both both Kevin and yourself? Yeah. Right. Something that you start when you said at the beginning what you do in relation to what you do, making recovery visible. I remember once, Brighton, funnily enough, I, I went to a, a, a kind of re recovery rally, right, in, in Brighton. And we all walked, met at the beach and we all went on this walk, the recovery walk, right? And we, we ended up in some park, yeah. right? And Right, there was all like stages set up and that. And, there, and I remember at the time there was a lady mayoress, right, of, of Brighton. And she got up and she did this, she said this thing that really stuck with me, right? And she said, you know, this is Brighton, right? And in Brighton, addiction is very visible. You, you only have to walk down the road and you'll see people, you know, in various states of intoxication and you know, drug addicts and stuff. He said, you know, it's very visible. You know, addiction is very visible. She said, but recovery is invisible, right? 
unless we have things like this rally. If you're walking down the road, you can see the drinker sat up the road, right, in the throng of people, you'll, you'll, you'll notice the drinker. But as you're walking towards the drinker, you may have walked past 10 people in recovery, right? But you won't recognize them, right? Because recovery is invisible, right? You know, but when we have rallies like this, it, it, it lifts the, 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 the kind of spirit of, of people who live in Brighton, right? Because they get a counterbalance. Okay, we see, we see the effects of addiction all the time. But today we see recovery, right? You know, all these thousands of people gathered together, you know, in, coming together, you know. Yeah, and it was great. I thought, what a great thing to say, you know. Do you know what happened? Well, funnily enough, that event that you came to in Brighton was our first year living in Brighton, and I was part of the organising <laughs> committee for that for that walk. Really? <laughs> you did well. <laughs> it was so spectacular, and it was it was um, run. We were supported by a charity called. Um, it was called the UK Recovery Walk at the time, but it's now called Faces and Voices Recovery. And it's a really good friend of mine called Anne-Marie Ward, who is an amazing recovery activist. I mean, she she just wants to celebrate everything brilliant about us. And she she puts on these walks all over the UK. And I was involved in that walk. So we thought of that, really, but we didn't. You did well inviting the, 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 the mayoress. To, to like do a little speech, I thought she was brilliant. <laughs> oh well, you know what? I mean, that's what me and Kev have always done, aren't we, Kev? We that's what we want to do. We want to be able to be part of this cultural change because if people don't know recovery is possible and they don't hear about recovery, how do they know where to go to find it? Yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? And that's why we use this platform really to to showcase amazing people like you and the and the amazing dual diagnosis anonymous that you you're part of. So thank you so much for coming. Have you got any questions, Kev, or anything? I just want to say I just want to say thank you very much, Alan, and for that uh, because you know you were eloquent and and very informative, and coming from a personal place as well. And and that's the sort of thing we've been talking about is is visible recovery of which you are. And that's why I see. Thank you very much for your time, and I hope we can uh, come back again. I hope we can get you back on when things turn back to normal, and uh, see how you're progressing. Yeah, fantastic. And Thank you, guys. Anytime. It was, it was my pleasure to take part, and good luck with all what you're doing. Oh. You know, you know, if if we come from enough side, we might make a dent on things. We <laughs> and if there's anything we can do to help you, honestly, just shout out. You've got our numbers now, so you're part of our family. So just reach out. Anything we can do to help. Likewise, likewise. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you, thank you, and lots of love to everybody who's watching. We hope you got some hope from that amazing um, talk that Alan gave. Sorry, John couldn't join us. We missed you, John, but you'll be back, I'm sure. And I hope Dan can join us as well next time. So. Absolutely. Yeah, but thanks, thanks so much. Nice to see everyone. Bye. Hi, I'm Matt. I'm one of our volunteer fundraisers here at Kennedy Street. Thanks for listening. Your support is greatly appreciated. Please do head over to our website, www.kennedystreetcio.org, for information on how you could be involved in future fundraising campaigns or how you can donate to this great cause.